imagine, imagine that you're on a journey and you're leading about uh, 2 million refugees who've recently been freed from slavery in Egypt, and they're about to enter a land that was promised generations ago to your forefathers. The land they're about to enter uh, has mighty warriors in it, right? They stand head and shoulders above every soldier that you have. And in order to have this promised land that was, well, that was promised to you, you're going to have to conquer these giant warriors in, in ways that you would never have imagined. The people who live in this land are not only giant, but they're immoral beyond all comparison between anything that you can imagine. Even the immoral people of the world would say they're immoral, they're immoral beyond, uh, beyond understanding. And they worship many idols, many false made up gods. It's an impossible feat for mere humans, but your recently deceased leader prepared an essential gift to remind you who your king is in all of his majesty. He he reminds you who you are, warts and all, and why you must serve and honor and obey this king. He reminds you how your king has won many battles before you with strategy, resources that no other king could dream of. And he reminds you how and why you were made for this very purpose. And given every necessary resource to ensure ultimate victory. Your king, the king over all kings, has a master plan that no other can rival. This plan is more than just simply about going in and, and conquering your, your enemies. It's an anthology of sorts. It's at times compiled information and at times information that's written out specifically for you, but it's handcrafted to remind you of, of, of many of your recent ancestors' failings, how, how your mom and dad went astray in some ways, how your grandparents or your great-grandparents got, got distracted or, or lived in fear in some ways. And so there were consequences that they bore that he doesn't want you to bear. He doesn't want you to make the same grave errors, worshiping other gods to your own peril. You must worship Elohim. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob's name later changed to Israel. But that became a, a refrain. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And so in order to help instill this resolve to love and follow and worship this only true king, Elohim, the one true God, Moses wrote and partially compiled the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy taken together. They're shorter than a novel that some of you might read in a week's time, maybe between 250 and 400 pages, depending on the size of the page and, and the typesetting all told really not that long. And Genesis, the book of beginnings, the book of origins is the first book in the Pentateuch, and God's inspired, completed word that we now hold in our hands. We call it the canon, the closed canon. That is, there's no new authoritative revelation from God to man. It's all completely contained in the word of God. Genesis, the first book in the Bible, is the true account of the only creator God. It's written to show Israel, their origins. And, and Moses wanted them to know that God was the all-powerful, all-sovereign God who moved through history to bring them where they were. 
poised to take the land of Canaan because of God's powerful, God's sovereign working in history to see that they were at that point where they are. But God's purpose for Genesis stretches far beyond simply the Israelites and Joshua and the people of Israel needed to you and to me this very day. It's not simply an old archaic book that we don't need to read any longer. It's not the Old Testament that doesn't apply to us any longer. In fact, I think you'll see in the Old Testament, there is as much grace that we see in the New Testament. There is grace on every page as we read through the Old Testament. It is as potent today as if it ever was. There are enduring truths, that is, uh, that is truths that apply to every people in every time and culture, in every time and in every culture. Certainly not everything that we read that is descriptive of what happened applies to us in the same way today. That for sure is true, but there are a multitude of principles that are equally applicable for you and I as we go home this very day. These things are written for our instruction, the the Bible tells us, to help us walk this walk of faith with every confidence in God. This book, this book of beginnings is an unshakable foundation, really the unshakable foundation that you and I need We need it to understand who our king is in all of his creative majesty. Not just Israel's king, but also our king for those who name the name of Jesus. We we need this to see and understand who we are, warts and all, sins and all, and why we must, why we're compelled out of love to serve this great king with our whole lives. We need this to see how our God Not just a a random anonymous God out there, but for those who have trusted in him, he's our personal God. Significantly transcendent and yet very personal in the soul and the heart of each one who names the name of Jesus as their savior through repentance and faith. And so how our God won countless battles before us with strategy and resources and power that no one else can rival. And we need this because we see how and why. We were made for the very purposes that God has established for us, not only with our spiritual ancestors back in the land of Canaan, standing on the edge of Canaan across the river. But today, in your thriving marriage, in your struggling marriage, in your difficult work situation, in complicated situations and circumstances where where finances seem like they're not coming together, we need to understand how and why we were made for this very purpose that God established for us and given all the power and every necessary resource to ensure victory through faith. The theme of Genesis is God's sovereignty in human history, especially in the history of Israel, his chosen people. It's an account of how God began to call out a people for himself with the purpose of blessing all nations through them. But for us today, as we read this, we're not simply reading history to, to get a better education on, on Christian, Christian history or, or Christian living. We will see that since God is the self-existent, eternal creator and only king, we must give our whole lives, our whole hearts to worship him. Genesis is divided into two main sections and they hinge 
almost all commentators will agree they hinge at chapter 12. Now you could divide it more than that. Uh, and you certainly could, because anything with 50 chapters is going to have themes that, that run throughout where you could find natural dividing points. So I want to invite you, open your Bible app to uh, the book of Genesis, uh, or it's rare that I can say this, open a Bible near you and you will find Genesis on page one. <laughs> Just get through the introduction and the preface. And it'll be right there. It's also worth noting, uh, this sermon is going to be a little different than, um, than the way we typically preach here, where we identify a passage and we sequentially will work through a particular passage uh, or a particular book. We will be doing that with Genesis. We'll have some breaks along the way, but uh, we will be, uh, this morning is going to serve as an introduction for us. And so we're going to do a summary of the book. And so we're going to move fairly quickly. And, and also, I just want to say, I, today you may feel that I'm a little bit more tied to my notes. Uh, and that's because there are so many so many wonderful places to wander. And I'm going to try to keep myself on the main path for our morning. So I hope you'll bear with me in that. The message, hopefully, well, because it's God's word, will be equally good and wonderful, we pray. Let's just pray together as we continue. God, we just ask you, Lord, to, to open our eyes to the beauty and the wonderful wonder of this book in Genesis. Uh, teach us, enliven our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, one commentator and pastor, G. G. Campbell Morgan, has cleverly, out, cleverly outlined the book uh, using three words, generation, degeneration, and regeneration. You might say creation, the fall, and, and redemption, right? Um, and so in uh, creation, obviously chapters one and two introduce us to the wonders of creation and, 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 and what the Lord has to say about how he made the world and all that is in us. Degeneration refers to the fall leading to the judgment and the flood and further judgment at the Tower of Babel or Babel, however you want to say that. And regeneration where the Lord sovereignly leads and redeems his chosen people through the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and in Joseph's life as well. Genesis is rich in theology. Now, you might say, I don't really like theology. Well, I will say, theology is a study of God. So that's a slight against the Lord if you say, well, I don't really enjoy studying God. I get, I think, what I think you mean. I'm not really a book person, and I don't enjoy uh, academics a whole lot. And that's okay. I'm tracking with you there. But, but God gave us a book, and, and uh, fortunately, we live in a day where you can listen to the Bible quite easily uh, and actually, in, in, actually in, in, in not a very even monotone way. So there are tremendous apps out there. I would encourage you uh, sometime in the near future to take some time, read through this whole book or listen through this whole book. Or I particularly enjoy listening and reading at the same time because it just keeps me moving and keeps me focused. It takes about four hours, you know, depending on a variety of factors. It takes about four hours to do it. And I, I would venture to say it may be one of the best afternoons you spent in a while. Find an afternoon and carve out some time and say, you know what, let's read through this together. Or let me just listen to it. Or listen to it on your way to work. In two weeks, you've likely have gone through uh, the entire book of Genesis, obviously depending on where you work. Uh, we see here that uh, it's been said that the roots of all subsequent revelation are planted deeply in Genesis. And whoever would truly comprehend that revelation must begin here. Theologian A.W. Pink says in Genesis, we have in germ form almost all of the great doctrines, which are afterwards fully developed in the books of scripture, which follow. And he lists a handful here, and I'll put them on the screen for you. Um, God, God is revealed as the sovereign, all-powerful creator, 
He is seen as the covenant God. The first hint of the Trinity is in Genesis. The schemes of Satan, the fallen nature of man, God's sovereign election and his saving grace, justification by faith, the security of the believer, the need for holiness, the power of prayer, even the saints rapture to heaven are here in Genesis. God's judgment on sin, his promise of a savior and the death and resurrection and the death and resurrection and the superior priesthood of that savior are foreshadowed. The basis of God's program for world mission is also found in Genesis. Genesis tells us the beginning of almost everything except God who has no beginning. There is beginning of the universe of life of man, a seven day week, marriage, family, life, sin, sacrifice, redemption, death, the nations, government, cities, music, literature, art, agriculture, and languages. So on, on, on no, uh, on no account would we have any basis to say, ah, oh, this isn't really an interesting book. It's just an old dead archaic work. Oh, brothers and sisters, this is so rich. So let's begin with Genesis 1 and 2 as we see uh, generation or God's creation. It opens with the assumptive reality of God. God is not explained. He is not defended. He is simply stated. God is. The first four words of the Bible, first three words in the Hebrew Bible, authoritatively declare, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Here we see this unshakable foundation upon which the rest of scriptures are based. There is only one God. And he alone made the heavens and the earth. This affirmation separates the Old Testament and all biblical faith from its ancient Near Eastern counterparts who spread fables about creation. Even where those most marvelous fables end, Genesis is just beginning. The revelation of who God is determines who we are and why everything in the universe exists for God's glory. We begin to see the Trinity or the triune God. Trinity is not a word used in the Bible, but a description of the triune God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons in one God, is seen, though dimly, here early in the pages of Genesis. It's not fully explained, but certainly seen. We see even Jesus' first miracle recorded here in Genesis. We, we don't learn about it until later in Colossians. Well, in the Psalms we see it as well, but... In Colossians, we're told, for by him, all things were created. Speaking of Jesus, everything in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him or through him and for him. J.I. Packer asks what he says might be the most important question about a person. What comes into our mind when we think about God? Early in Genesis, we're faced with the question as we read of of our earliest ancestors, Adam and Eve, Whose view of God will we believe? Will we believe Christ's view of God as we understand it or or God's view of himself or Satan's? And how can we know? How can we know? In the early chapters, we see that mankind is created in the image of God. A miracle and a reality that provides the ethical underpinnings for a heavy majority, if not all, of the issues we face as humans. Murder isn't just a a crime against another person. It's a crime against God because it's a crime against the image of God in man. Unlike animals, mankind bears the image of God. We, We speak, we think, we relate, we work, we rule, we assess 
And best of all, we can know him. This self-existent, eternal God who made everything. We can know him. We can, we can walk with him. We can share his work. Created sinlessly, Adam and Eve only need to keep their commands for their, for keep God's commands for their perfect life with him to continue. Questions about human conception and human beings, uh, human beings in utero to the ethical end of life decisions are based largely on the fact that we are not the creator and therefore it is not ours to decide when a newly conceived baby lives or dies. And we put ourselves in the place of God when we do. Adam and Eve are given a creation mandate, as theologians call it, to, to be fruitful, Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth and subdue it and, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We begin to understand people. Bob Kellerman writes, who are we? What makes people tick or whose are we and in what story do we find ourselves? Here, the man is placed in a beautiful garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Do you know work came before the fall? It was easier before the fall, but it came before the fall to work the garden, to keep the garden. It's a blessing for us to work and to keep things, to, to make things grow and to, or to, to plant things so that God could cause them to grow, I guess, if I'm going to say that accurately, right? To make things, to make things thrive, as Richard Phillips says so well in the masculine mandate. More wonderful than work was the helper and the partner that God created for Adam. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And for this beautiful companionship, we receive the institution of marriage, where one man and, and one woman as bio, biologically created by God are to hold fast to one another and to become one flesh. Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Unfortunately, this would be the end of life without shame as we degenerated pretty quickly. Genesis 3 through 11 lead us through this degeneration, this fall of mankind. We're kind of thrust into chapter 3 with the word now. And whenever you see that, you, you recognize that it's a pivotal word, sometimes even indicating a, a massive pivot in the storyline of humanity. It's kind of like that suspenseful music when a, when a, uh, uh, when a, uh, uh, a stalker or an attacker lurks kind of sneaking up on his victim. You can kind of hear the music in the background. Now something is about to change and it doesn't sound good. Well, we see that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The first man and the first woman in Adam and Eve sin. They, they distrust God's good motives and his words, and they break what are his protective commands. 
Whose words will you believe today? Will you believe God's words? Or you believe the lure of the enemy who we know the Bible says came to seek and to kill and to destroy? Do you believe the protective commands that God has given you for your life? I know at times I don't. We ask questions like, well, what is truth? Or where, we can find, where can we find answers? In other words, where do we find answers for life in this broken world? Where do we find not just information, but knowledge? How do we apply this information to our lives? Whose truth holds ultimate sway? God's truth or your truth? So Adam and Eve, of course, believe Satan's deception and they desire to be like God. So they choose sin. They're enticed. Satan's plan works momentarily. In other words, what they believed internally, they believed that they, they knew the best answers out of the multiple choice options. They said, oh, I think that we can, we can handle choosing this one correctly. We don't have to believe God. In fact, they just, they didn't believe. They chose to believe Satan. And that question still faces us today as we seek to, to understand and diagnose the problems in our own heart. We ask many of the same questions. What went wrong? Like, why did I do what I did? What's the root source of our problem? So we see that sin has grave consequences and the world experiences an onslaught of wickedness that affects the ground, Adam and Eve's children, and anyone born since Adam, save one. And his name is Jesus Christ. All right, you might feel it now from time to time. You might feel the shame of a decision. So I don't know if I feel the shame. Do you avoid eye contact? Now that's not a dead giveaway that it's because of shame, but... It's a reality or it's a possibility. Are there things about the way you interact with people or certain people you interact with or certain people that you avoid that would cause you to say, you know, I am feeling shame for decisions I've made. Every one of us feels shame uh, in one form or another. God sees. No one can hide from God. And God's judge, God judges, right? Sin always brings God's judgment. In Genesis 4 through 9, it comes in the form of a flood as God wipes away, uh, wipes out nearly every human and animal from the face of the earth. This is one of the saddest passages in the Bible where we see God's grief over sin. He says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inch in every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The NIV says, only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. In other words, his heart was filled with pain. And so he decides to judge the world. He says, this is too evil. It's too awful. I can't contain to see it. And we're going to, we're going to start over, but note friends, this is not a plan B. This has always been part of God's plan A. And then we see, but God a refrain we see throughout the Bible. God establishes a covenant with Noah. God shows mercy through unconditional election as he saves one man and his family, all eight in total. And he tells Noah to build an ark and Noah begins building an ark. And who knows what the cultural uh, commentary would have been on that day. There's not a cloud in the sky. They've not seen or experienced rain like this before. There was a, a dew that would water plants and things like that. And, and, and so... 
he's building an ark and a substantial one. And the Lord brings animals of every kind, two by two. They get loaded up in the ark and Noah and his family go in. And then the Bible says, God shut them in. I love that. Think of like, well, they have a, a big, huge, you know, rope on the inside and all eight people are pulling really hard to get this thing up. The trajectory of that would make that near impossible. But God shut them in. And after the flood subsides, God keeps his promise to establish a covenant, a promise never to, to destroy the earth in that way again. He put his bow in the sky, a rainbow, never to be co-opted by anyone. This is God's symbol. This is God's message of love to people who have strayed from him, but on whom he has shown great mercy and given great promises. And knowing our short-sightedness, given us a, a, a reminder, a reminder, a symbol in within the world that we live in to remind us that he will never do this again. There's not a lot of time that goes by before we see people in Babel desiring to be like God. And they're speaking one language and they, they come together and they say, Hey, let us get, let us get together and build a tower. We'll build a tower up to the heavens and we'll make a name for ourselves." And I just love this verse. There's a powerful phrase here. There's a powerful phrase. This is Genesis 11 uh, chapter five or verse five or verse nine, depending on where you are on the story. God came down to them. Did you see this? I mean, they're at, the, that they're at the apex of human achievement at this point, And they're building this massive tower or, or, you know, to try to make a name for themselves. And God, they're trying to get as high as they can get. And what happens? God still has to come down. You'll never achieve it. You'll never be able to build high enough. And when you think you do, I will foil your plan. Well, how did he foil their plan? Well, he confused their language. And to this day, we feel the effect of that sin. We're not able to freely communicate with people around the world uh, without knowing another language, without in, in investing intentional, significant effort to learn a language of, uh, of other people. And so in judgment, God confuses their language. And we see many times over that God is both the one who judges but he's also the one who protects. God doesn't swat everyone, kill everyone the moment they sin. We deserve it, but he doesn't do that every time. Human sin has to be punished. And yet God protects people from themselves and he protects people from one another. So we've seen God's creative handiwork and generation followed by mankind's very quick and absolute degeneration and even this is marked by God's protective, caring, loving grace, ultimately leading to God's plan for regeneration or redemption, where he begins to fulfill the promise he made to send a savior to crush the head of the serpent all the way back in Genesis chapter three. Now you're going to notice here in chapter 12, don't worry, we're not going chapter by chapter here to get to 50, but you will notice that chapters 1 through 11 move much more slowly. In chapter 12, the narrative picks up substantially. And we see longer passages of Scripture, longer narratives that are, that are sewn together to help us see how God has worked in the lives of his people, right? So, so we see this pace that, that picks up. There's an important division here as God traces the storyline of his people to bolster the confidence. Remember, Joshua and the Israelites are preparing to enter the land of Canaan. 
There are giants in the land of Canaan. And Moses wants his people to know, don't make the same failures that we made. Don't fall for the trick. Don't fall for the ploy to worship other gods. Remember who your God is. He spoke the universe into being. Remember this. And so Moses works intentionally to to communicate this. Chapters 12 through 50, they focus on Abraham and his family, initially named Abram, later called Abraham. And through Abraham, we see the beginnings of justification by faith. In other words, we are made right with God when we live with faith in God's promises. And that faith is borne out through our actions. And he works to fulfill those promises. God calls and he promises. And then he does the lion's share of the work. Really, he does all of the work to keep those promises. And so Abraham now, this one family line becomes the focal point of God's redemptive work in regeneration. Even even his faith. Abraham, later called Abram and Sarai, they're weak in their faith when the circumstances that are beyond their control I mean, when you read the word and you see the things that Abram asked Sarai to do and or later Sarah, his sister, and, and uh, there's, there's lying and there's deception. Abram's out for protecting himself. I mean, it's just, you read this and you go, you know, Sherilyn and I read this or listened to this story when we were driving the week after Christmas. We were driving out to Maryland. So we had some time in the car. I said, hey, let's listen to Genesis, right? And so we're listening to it. We, we had a little, little spat recently before that. And I'm just unloading our dirty laundry. So we had a, had a little spat, you know. And so we're listening to this. We're listening to this story, and we're just hearing all these things that are going on. We know about them, but when we listen to them again, I just looked over at Sherilyn and I was like, "We're going to be okay." <laughs> Can you believe what these people are doing in Genesis? And yet, we believe similar lies that what God tells us isn't actually going to work. And while the actions may be different, the lies we believe are very similar. Isaac is born to Abraham when Abraham's 100 years old. That's the child that God had promised to give Abram. And God's promise to bless all of the people on the earth through Abraham continues. God tells Abram then to to sacrifice his son, Wait, Lord, this is the promised son through whom we're supposed to bless the whole, or you're supposed to bless the whole earth, and you want me to kill him. Abram knows that delayed obedience is disobedience, so he gets up early the next morning, and he begins right away on the trek. And his son says, Dad, where's the offering? He says, the Lord will provide an offering, and he continues on. And when Abram's hand is up in the air, I believe fully committed to killing his son because he believes and he trusts and he worships the Lord above all. The angel of the Lord stays his hand. And the Bible tells us in Genesis and in Hebrews that he believed that God would raise him from the dead and that belief is credited to him as righteousness. And Isaac lives and fathers Jacob and Esau with a feud that begins while they're in the womb. They're in the womb, and these two brothers who will be two different nations begin a feud that will go uh, the rest of their life. We do see a beautiful reconciliation, so I should say most of the rest of their life later in the book. And then Jacob, Jacob in chapters 27 through 36, Jacob desires to give the blessing to Esau. 
And Jacob, cunning. Jacob. Jacob blesses Isaac. I'm sorry, I got it wrong. Isaac blessed Jacob. Because he tricked him. He and his mom, they tricked him. And in the Old Testament, a blessing is a big deal. And once the blessing is spoken, it can't be revoked. Genesis 28 through 36 portrays this picture of God as the one who elects and protects his people. You cannot read Genesis and see anything other than God's divine election. Because there's absolutely there's absolutely nothing about this guy that will make you go, oh yeah, he's the surefire pick. Yeah, he's got great character, right? When his brothers... Well, anyway, I, I told you I have to stick here today because... <laughs> but it's loud and clear. It's loud and clear. And it's over and it's over and and over. Genesis is this unshakable foundation that God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Jacob's wit, his determination, ultimately they lead to a man with a limp. A man who's so stubborn and so intent on wrestling with God that eventually the Lord just touches his hip and the man walks with a limp for the rest of his life. Bless me, Jacob cried. I will not let go until you bless me. Jacob soon becomes Israel, which means striven or one who strives with God. And in the closing chapters of Joseph, we see one of the most beautiful pictures of the divine sovereignty of God that is unparalleled in much of the Bible. It sets forth this picture of, of God who preserves his covenant people. There's no threat, however severe, that can thwart God's plans for Abram's family. The creator's purposes for creation will be upheld through the lives of these particular people, these particular humans that he made. How do we find peace in the midst of life? Life's most painful, confusing, and hopeless circumstances look no further, friends, than the sovereign, purposeful leading of the one true God. Our king, not just a king, our king. Joseph's a foolish bragger sold into slavery. And that was a gift considering his brothers wanted to murder him. From being sold into slavery, he was, he, he, he was transported over to Egypt. Important note. He's transported into Egypt. He's wrongfully accused of, of sexual sin. He's thrown into prison. He's forgotten about in prison. He, two other prisoners come and he interprets their dreams. Basically, paraphrase, you're going to live. You're going to, I mean, you're going to die. You're going to have a great life. Hey, by the way, will you remember when we get when out? Of course I will, right? He gets out. He no sooner forgets about him. Until years later, the Pharaoh needs his dreams interpreted. And he's like, oh, oh. I forgot, the cupbearer says, I forgot about this guy. Uh, Pharaoh, there's a guy that's in prison. He's been there for a while now. My niece works for a ministry down in Florida, a skating and uh, surfing ministry. And they just go out and they build relationships with folks. Anyway, she's their editor for their magazine. And she wrote, I just got it in the mail this week. She said, you know, to somebody that she was talking with, she said, you know, God has taken me places, but he's also kept me places. Sometimes God has clearly led me to go somewhere. And God has also 
kept me places. Have you been there? Stuck? Confused? Frustrated? Angry? Shaking your fist at God? Maybe not out of anger at God, but of that confusion toward God because you don't understand what's happening in your world. You don't know why you're still stuck. But see, when we begin to see the divine purposes of God's purpose for us and for us in this world, we begin to see, ah, nothing is without purpose. Nothing, whether that you have done or that has been done to you, is an accident. Now that is even a hard pill to swallow at times. God's purposeful. And Joseph, well, he comes out of prison to interpret the Pharaoh's dreams. And the Pharaoh is pleased with his interpretation. He makes him second in command. And when he makes him second in command, he has the wealth, whatever he needs. Long story short, he reconciles with his brothers through quite an ordeal, to be honest with you. It's quite a long process. Traveling was a bit more complicated in those days. took a little bit longer. But he reconciles. But when he had his brothers before him, he could have done whatever he wanted to him. Could have thrown them in a pit. Could have had their hands lopped off. You remember when we said that the Ishmaelites, I didn't say the Ishmaelites, but the Ishmaelites brought Joseph to Egypt? You might ask that question. Well, well who, who, who brought Joseph to Egypt? The Ishmaelites? Well, that'd be a right answer. But the answer that supersedes it is God. And Joseph says it in chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Oh, friends, the purposes of God that we cannot even imagine lay before us today. Wherever you are in your life, whatever circumstance you are struggling with, God is strongly and confidently on his throne. And as my college pastor used to say, he is not biting his nails. You see how Joseph's inner life increasingly began to reflect the mercy and the grace of God. The one who, as, as, a young, as a young man, was bragging about how God was going to use him. Now, his bragging ceases. Now he knows he's God's man for God's purposes, and he extends grace. We call this today progressive sanctification. The, the idea that we are, we are regenerated, when we are regenerated or made new by experiencing God's grace personally, often through hardship or difficulty or confusion, God sovereignly weaves godly character through us. It's mixed with our humanness. And so it's an imperfect reflection of how God is making us more and more to be like Jesus, to be sure. But as the light of circumstances shine on us, we begin to see increasing glimmers of God's grace shining not only on us, but from us toward others. Another gift of God's grace, which points to our creator God. And as we said at the beginning, why we were made for the very purposes God has established for us and given all of the power and every necessary resource to ensure victory through faith. Moses then seamlessly connects Genesis to Exodus. Don't worry, we're not going through Exodus now. 
<laughs> I hear that nervous laughter. As God sovereignly brought his people from the Garden of Eden to where Abram was, to Egypt. And they were a thriving people. A thriving people that the Egyptians started to get nervous about. And they began a life of slavery. If you're leading two million refugees into a land with many, many giants and you're trying to size up this earthly situation, you need this unshakable foundation. You need this gift from God's messenger, Moses, who's not even mentioned in Genesis because he's not born until Exodus 2. This would be just what you need, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Since God is the self-existent, eternal creator and the only king, we must, every one of us, give our whole lives and our hearts to worship him. I pray that you already believe that message. I pray that Genesis, as we begin to move through the book of Genesis, will begin to affirm and maybe renew or maybe bring new understanding of who God is. And I pray that with every challenge, we would help one another to believe God's truth recognizing that his is the only truth for his glory, praise, and forever fame. I pray that this, this would enliven your hearts, that this would encourage you as we go now to remember what we know from the New Testament. See, we have the, the lens of the New Testament to be able to help us see what has happened in the old, sometimes interpreting what has happened in the old. And so as God has made a covenant, he also made a new covenant with the blood of Jesus. A new covenant that we do well to honor the Lord, to say we will remember this when we get together. Because I, like Adam, like Eve, like Abram, like Joshua, I need the reminder. Ah, Joshua, he's in his own book. Jacob. Joseph, we need this reminder that Jesus died on the cross so that we don't have to earn salvation for ourselves because we can't, because we all fail. So come, eat, drink. If you need to talk, I'll just be right here. Tap me on the shoulder. would love to talk with you or pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your wonderful word. Thank you for the incredible story of who you are that you've given to us to be able to know you better, to be able to worship you fully, to sustain us, to hold us, to teach us. Lord, may we apply, even from today, so, so many lessons in, in one quick overview sermon. Meet us where we're at, we pray. That's who you are, that's what you do. Help us respond to you in faith, well before we can ever see the outcome of what you're calling us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.